Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. We are picking up where we left off last week in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 13. I think that one of the things, one of the ways that Christians stand out the most, should stand out the most in this world, is our in our attitudes of submission. In our society, submission is a bad thing. We see it as a negative word. In the workplace, in the family, we have a society that says, I will bow to no one. Uh, We are independent. We have an Independence Day. (laughs) And we don't like to submit. We see it as a sign of weakness. Too many take that, unfortunately, into their faith. But when we are Christians, we bow. Do we not? To Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we remember that the king of the universe set us an example and was submissive even to the point of death, death on a cross, in a world where it's all about clawing your way to the top and being king of the mountain. In such a world, the Christian stands out. A true Christian submits, submits to God, to Christ, and and leads a life that shows that. Now, the biblical language that is used of submission is, has a military tone to it. Soldiers voluntarily choose to submit to commanding officers because if they don't, it's not a unit. It's just a bunch of individual people doing their own thing, and, and there's chaos. It's voluntary submission for a greater cause. But what we may not notice is that the Bible calls us to submit to more than just Christ. Now, in our society, if we think about it, I think that we get submission. We submit voluntarily to government, cops, the courts of law, even laws that you don't like. If you think the speeding limits are dumb, you can take that chance. But it may come back to bite you if they catch you. And, and, and most of us don't want to deal with those legal repercussions. And so the responsibility of living in, in the country that we live is that we, or in any country, is that you submit to the laws because you have to. Whether you like them or not, I think that we know this. Christians are called to submit. A relationship with Christ means to submit to him But we do need to see how that plays out. It it needs to be more than coming to church on a Sunday morning. Our faith is more than that. In our relationship with the world, Christ wants the world to see our submission to him. Peter thus talks about how the world will see Christ in our submission. that's, That's the important context. We'll see that. There, there's a lot of context to, to, to the book of 1 Peter. We're so bad about lifting a chapter out and reading it and, and, and not always looking at the bigger 
picture, which is why we're going to look at a little bit more than an average amount of Scripture this morning, because I think that the Scripture helps us interpret Scripture. Peter talks about that in 2 Peter. Okay, so with that said, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So, Paul's first command is to submit to authorities, governments, kings, law. Now, we have to understand the century when, when Peter was living. Israel had been conquered again and again and again. Babylonians, 586 B.C., and the Babylonians were replaced by the Persians, and the Persians were replaced by the Greeks, and the Greeks were replaced by the Romans. And it has been 600 years. America's only been around for 200 years. 600 years at this point of not being their own country. The Israelites, uh, that, that, had a, if you, if, that had affected their mindset. Understandably, when we look at, at things like the Maccabean Revolt, we get that their heroes were the ones that fought against this empirical tyranny, the, the tyranny of these other empires that were conquering them. They were rightfully angry. The Romans had put an Edomite uh, as their governor of Judea, um, the Edomites, they hated the Edomites. They were one of their enemies for, 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 for at this point, over a thousand years. And one of the Edomites, Herod, was in, was in charge of governing them. They had built within them this idea of the heroic, rebel, people that would have been in modern language probably called um, uh, terrorists. And I'm not saying that they were terrorists, but we use that language sometimes a little flippantly. And certainly some of their tactics were meant to inspire terror in their enemies. Rome was their enemy. Edom was their enemy. And, and so knowing that, part of us gets this, right? I mean, I wonder how we would classify George Washington today. Looking back 200 years at the tactics that George Washington and other... When I was in school, it was 200 years. We're coming up on closer to 250, aren't we? 1776 is, is uh, getting closer to 250 years ago now. Um, the, the, uh, we, we get this in the U.S. We get these people. We, we, it's heroic to fight against representation, taxation without representation. And, and we get that mindset that live free or die. Alaska and Texas, how many times have they voted to secede from the U.S.? Now, in fairness, Hollywood every four years threatens to secede if they don't get their way either. So uh, that's just kind of this American attitude of... of if I can't have my way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my toys and go home. Uh, as Americans, yeah, corrupt government is a thing. And as Americans, we, we are kind of sensitive to what we see as corruption in government. Our nation was founded upon breaking away from what we felt was a, a corrupt, tyrannical government fighting the system. So then we read this. 
And we ask ourselves the tough questions. How, how are we supposed to take this? Well, what would Peter say if he saw the U.S., the, the American Revolution, when we broke away from, from the U.K.? Would he, have, would he have been against it? Would, would he have been, been for it? Now, I, I, let me be clear. I'm not actually wanting to sound... You guys can work through that. That's not the point of, of the sermon. Um, we fought against an unfair tyranny at the time. I absolutely believe that. I can also say that most of the ancient world was unfair tyrannies. <laughs> most of Babylon and Egypt and, and the various dynasties in China conquered other, other people. How do we wrestle through this? I, I do think that there is a danger when we look at the Bible and we, and we filter the Bible through our worldview. I always think that that's going to be a danger. If we look at the Bible and say, well, as an American, I read it this way. I don't, I don't know that that's... In fact, I'm convinced that that's not the right way to read Scripture. Uh, the goal isn't to say, well, America's right and we're going to make the Bible conform to our mindset. I think sometimes we try to defend culture rather than recognize that Scripture is right. And that's our, our window to look at the world. But Peter, again, I said context is important. Peter gives us our context. We do this to silence foolish talk. We submit, Peter says, freely, not because we're being forced into it. Again, a military soldier submits to their commander not because they were made to do it. Having enlisted, they choose to because things run better. We submit, Peter says, to government to display Christ. Christians should be the best citizens that any country has, not, not because they accept evil within government. I don't believe remotely that Peter is saying, if you have an evil government, Christians should go along with it. I absolutely don't believe that. But, as Peter has talked about, and Paul in particular, talks about the benefits of law. We've talked about, we talked about this this morning, that the benefit of, of uh the benefit of Rome, while, while the Jews didn't like Roman oversight, the Romans brought a lot of peace and safety and, and, and travel and, and, and a lot of laws to the world that, that on the whole, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was a real thing and it was a peaceful time for the world. And, and the New Testament writers could see that government had a lot of benefit. And Peter says... Submit to the authority, submit to government, and let people see in your submission to government what submission to Christ looks like. Christians should be the best citizens because it shows the world Jesus Christ. When people see our submission on earth, they will understand what God expects from us eternally. And that's our context. It's not let, let evil governments do whatever they want to do. It's be submissive. Show people in your in the way, give them a window in how you submit to government. Let people see how you submit to Christ. And so he continues, verse 18. Slaves, submit yourself, yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, well, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, 
leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Okay, so none of us are slaves, but boy, our, you know, we all know that our nation had that shameful time in its past. We, we get it. And, but many of us today are, maybe feel that we are wage slaves, forced into a job that we don't like, forced to go to work under conditions that maybe are, are not always the best, but we need to put food on the table. Peter says to the slaves, and I, I don't, it's fine to apply this to us. I think it applies to the same uh, to citizens. Submit willingly. Why? Because, because slavery is right? Because people deserve to be treated as subhuman? Because God doesn't care that people are treated poorly? No. Peter tells us why he's saying this. He cares. God cares. Of course God cares. Jesus himself was treated less than human. He was treated terribly on our behalf. He did it for you and me. And in the same way, if we're serious about being Christ-like, then we too may have to suffer. Because in submission, our masters will see Christ himself, and they may come to know him. And that's, that's the point. The point is not a, that the New Testament is pro-slavery, it's slave or free, we're all going to die one day. The point is that people shouldn't die separated from God. And if in this life, Peter's message, and it's a hard message to take in, if in this life my suffering creates a window that others who don't know God can see God, can see Christ, and come to know him, and spend eternity with him, which is a very, 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 very long time, then maybe a little bit of suffering in this life is worth it if someone else doesn't spend eternity separated from God. And that's a tough teaching. It's tough to wrap our brains around. I think it's a mature teaching. I'm reminded, I've talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer before. I have so much respect for this Christian preacher who ended up being imprisoned in Nazi Germany in the concentration camps because of his Christian message. They offered to free him. People could smuggle him out and free him multiple times. He had the chance to escape, and he kept turning it down because he felt that it was more important to minister to his fellow prisoners in the concentration camps than it was for him to escape. And he died under the tortures of of Hitler and the Nazis, but he recognized that his suffering was necessary for others. And that's a tough, mature thing to get through. But when we look at the lives of the martyrs of the church through thousands, through the 2,000 years of the church, we get it. We start to look and see that God can be glorified in our suffering. And so we look at what slaves go through, and we don't say that the New Testament is encouraging slavery. What we say is, it doesn't matter. What matters is that Christ is displayed. The Bible is, I, I, I believe that God wants men to be free. I think that the Bible uh, doesn't want people to be slaves, and I think that in countries where slavery exists, Christians should fight against it. But if 
But if we were slaves in such a country, our number one job, whether we're slaves or free, our number one job is to proclaim Christ. Not, not selfishly be at, because whether, I'm, whether I live rich or poor, slave or free, have all the comic books in the world or none. One day I'm going to die and none of that's going to matter. The only thing that's going to matter is my relationship with Christ. And I care about other people's relationship with Christ because God loves them. And if, and if my, in any way that I can show uh, the efficacy of the gospel through my life, then I've helped someone else see that too. And, and, and that makes God happy. And if God is happy, then I'm happy. Sometimes life isn't fair. And that's okay. We're not sticking around in this world forever anyway. This life is not fair. But I don't have to stay here for forever. Uh, we have freedom. We're free. Christ has freed us. Since I've got that freedom, I have the freedom to live whatever way is best to display the gospel. Christ asks us to live lives of submission that people can see him better. It's a hard teaching, but I think that there's room for that. And so now we go to the, here's our context. Now we get to that passage so many people just skip over or don't get. Chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty shouldn't come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and don't give way to fear. Okay, so we have to understand the context that this is written in, right? Before we, get, before we get all up in arms about what the Bible says. We've just read that non-Christian citizens, masters, may be won over by a submissive attitude. Not because they're better than someone else. We know we're all made in God's image. The master is not a better person than the slave. Christ. Uh, like Christ, we submit to God. Wives, and the context I think here is pretty clear. In particular, wives, if you are married to a non-Christian man, clearly you married them, we hope, not arranged marriage, that happened back then, but we hope, even if it wasn't arranged marriage, we hope that you came to love your husband. Um, For those of us in the U.S. who pick who we marry, we assume that you married that person because you loved them. If they're not Christian, what a tragedy that, that we're not on the same page on the most important thing in the world. Wives, Peter says, if you are married to a non-Christian husband, your respectful, submissive attitude will be another way to display Christ. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite singers, um, all through high school and, and still love him, John Schlitt, uh, was the lead singer of, I always get the bands Head East and Head West mixed up. I don't remember which one he was in. Um, Or Go West or whatever the band was. But he wasn't Christian, but his wife was. And she just prayed. 
just prayed and prayed. And, and he said she was the perfect wife, but it just bugged me so much how much she prayed for me. He said, but that bugging eventually started to eat away at me. He went on to eventually then become the lead singer of, of best, what was at one time the best-selling Christian band, Petra. But he always credited, he said, it was just my wife, he said it was just my wife's attitude. She was never fighting me about not being a Christian. She was just always gently displaying Christ. And he said that was what, what won me over. Um, a worldly, me-centered life will not display Christ. And the world sees that already all around us and doesn't see that it needs anything out of that. Our lives are a testimony. This is especially true if you find yourself what the Bible calls unequally yoked, Christian married to a non-Christian. It's not a hopeless case. Peter says specifically, wives, in a submissive Christ-like attitude, your husband will see Christ when you are Christ-like. And Christ, go back to chapter 2, showed submission, and you should too. This is not saying that husbands should always get their way and that wives never should get their way. This doesn't say that men are better than women. Don't read what Peter isn't saying. What this says is that when godly wives show Christ-like submission to husbands, Christ is seen. That's what it says. This is still, I think, an issue. So this is where, and I hope I'm not off topic on this one. Um, if a, if a, In my experience, when a man comes to church, when a husband comes to church, a lot of times the whole family comes with him. Uh, when husbands are Christian, the whole family tends to follow them to church. Even if the wife isn't Christian, in my experience, she kind of tends to come along. But I have seen so many churches where the wife is Christian and the husband isn't. She goes to church alone and the kids stay home with dad because they don't have to go because dad didn't go because, because that's just... Uh, and, and we could. I, there was a church I applied at in Illinois. It was a Disciples of Christ church. In my early days when I was first trying out, my grandfather recommended one church that I tried... That, he, that I should apply to. And this church, it was just women. The whole church was women. There, there were, it was 90% of the church, the husbands weren't going with their wives. And I didn't, they, they offered me the chance to, 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 to be their preacher and I, it just seemed so unhealthy that I, I chose not, not to serve there. Um, there's a whole lot of reasons why and I'd, maybe, why maybe, and I could only speculate on why this is, but certainly in Western culture, um, there's something to be said that women are very, very spiritual, and they get it, but they have trouble sometimes communicating that to their husbands. And that's why I think that there are, I think, from my experience, more women go to church than men. I think women get it, but I think that, that sometimes there's trouble communicating that. And I think Peter is maybe helping us understand one way that we can try to help men get it. Wives, submit to your husbands. Not because they're better, because it's the Christ-like thing to do. But Peter goes on in verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Likewise, husbands, be considerate, respectful, we would say, gentlemen, knights in shining armor, show, show chivalry. Why? Because women should know their place. No, Peter's a lot more blunt than that. Because it interferes with your relationship with God, that is a blunt statement. 
That's as serious as you can get. We may be joint heirs, but Peter says women, as the weaker partners, need that. Our history of the world is filled with wars, pillaging, and rape, if we're going to be honest, and all these terrible things, women being mistreated for thousands of years. But both of us are made in God's image, and God would see women protected and cherished, and guys cherished through us, and treated the way that he wants them treated. Peter's culture, women were still property. And many places in the world still today, I mean, literally right now, while I'm speaking, there are riots, and, and, and I'm kind of checking my news constantly. Iran's going through quite an, an upheaval right now, specifically over the way that women have been treated, um, even just in this last week. Um, there are cultures that treat women terribly. I'll be honest, just to call it out, many cultures with extremist Islam treat women shamefully. Um, uh, fully covered, can't see the sunlight, <laughs> living in a near-desert culture, fully covered, um, arranged marriages and, proper, and, and treated as property, and we get why so many flee. We get why, certainly in Africa, there are multiple cultures that were under hardcore Islamic rule and shifted to Christianity, and we know that the reason that they shifted was uh, in a large part due to the fact that the women in that country said Christianity tells us that we're both made in God's image, that we are joint heirs in Christ, and we're not treated that way in, in this. Christianity has the history of treating women better than, than, than any other religion historically. I, not all Christians have done that. Let's be honest. Many Christians have got it wrong. But the Bible tells us that we are equals in Christ, both made in his image. Peter's words were shocking to the ancient world. Unfortunately, they probably still are today. We are equals. We're not the same. And too often our world wants to shift, our modern world wants to say if we're equal, then we're the same, and we are not. God made us, but he did make us different. Different doesn't mean unequal, but different does mean that we're not the same. We're not, and that's part of that weaker thing. Um, the musculature, the testosterone in men and the musculature and, and our, our Y chromosomes that we have that women don't, that, that builds us differently. And so when we say weaker, we're not talking spiritually weaker. We're not talking mentally weaker. There are more women in college these days than men. Um, we're, I think, specifically talking physically weaker um, and, and therefore easy to take advantage of physically. And Peter says, husbands, cherish your wives, protect them. They, they, they need it. In a world with guys that are stronger than, than women, husbands should protect their wives. Now, mind you, um, if, if husbands and wives are both submitted to Christ, none of this is an issue, Right? Um, Ephesians chapter 5 tells us to submit to one another in love, and that makes sense. Guys, if you want to draw close to God, treat your wives great. And this is, again, context. This is about our witness. I do think that the primary context of this passage still relates to husbands, if your wife is a non-believer, by your way that you treat her. People will see how Christ treats his church. Paul makes that comparison between the bride of Christ the church and Christ, and and I do think that there's some context here. This is how a non-Christian wife will see Jesus. If husbands, if we act Christ-like, they'll they'll see. You know, that's our call. 
I do, uh, when a non-Christian wife sees respect, consideration, love, she'll see Christ, she'll get it. Keep reading. Verse 8. Finally, all y'all, I can say that right. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Finally, all y'all, live in heart. Every language has that except for English. Thank heavens we have it in some parts of the U.S. There's you and there's all (laughs) y'all. Everybody, all Christians, live in harmony with one another. But that, that makes sense. Can we say, unfortunately, that the church can be famous for feuds within the church? Families arguing with each other a little bit, people trying to get their own way. And so when non-Christians join us, they just see the same old thing. They see this in the rest of the world. They need to see Christ, right? That's what we want them to see when they come here. I know, we're only human, but we're trying not to be. We're trying to be more Christ-like, more perfect every day. Peter reminds us that this is what God has called us to do. And that the church's integrity proves that God knows what he's doing and proves his love for us, that his plan is right. When we live godly lives, the non-Christian will be ashamed that they spoke badly about us. When we suffer for being Christian, we show Christ in our lives. And the world needs to see him. Boy, the world needs to see him. Submission is a big deal. Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed, I don't want to do this, but I will do this, God. Christ showed submission to the Father. He submitted to death on a cross, and he calls us to show submission in our lives. We are free. We are free under God. We are free from sin. But we can give up some of our freedoms voluntarily. We give up our freedoms so that people will see Christ within us. That's the point. We do this because we have gratefully submitted to the Father, and our own egos don't need us to be king of all those around us, boss. We, we can be submissive because Christ set us that example. Our hymn of invitation is, I think, number 486. But I want to close with 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to finish verse 18. Finish the chapter. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, 
but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved. And this water symbolizes baptism. That now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you. It being the water. We've just established what that, the waters of baptism. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Christ submitted to death and was resurrected by God. When the world was flooded, the water Killed the unrighteous, the flood killed the unrighteous, but it saved the righteous. And Peter says it's the same with baptism. The flood, he says, symbolizes baptism. It's not the other way around. The flood was foreshadowing of, of baptism. Water, the water of baptism, he says, saves you. He says it twice. He uses that phrase. It, this saves you also. It saves you. Not because water is magical, and he specifies this. Not because you got wet. It represents the pledge of a good conscience towards God. If you haven't given your life to Christ in the waters of baptism, if you haven't pledged your life to him, that is part of, the, of God's plan of salvation. That is part of what it means to become a Christian. If you haven't done that in particular, I'd like to talk with you about that after church. Look, this, is not an easy, this was not an easy chapter, chapter and a half to get through, right? These are kind of mature teachings, but we've got to work through them because God doesn't expect us to stay spiritual infants. And so sometimes we read the Bible and say, this is, some, this is good stuff, this is easy stuff. I'm already doing this. Those are the ones we like to read. Sometimes it challenges us. And that's the job of the Bible is to perfect us and to work through the tough teachings. Thanks for sticking with me today. If we need to talk, let's talk. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.